Hey guys, welcome to the third episode of Tech This Way. I speak to a cool guy, Nason, the co-founder of Money Match. Unfortunately, I have to apologize. The sound quality is not great because my microphone was dead and I didn't realize it until post-production. So I had to do some magic to try and get the sound balance back. But in any case, um, it was a good conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Tech This Way. Yes, I'm all good. Okay, so welcome to Tech This Way. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for the invite. My, my third guest. <laughs> all right. Um, Lucky number three. That's right. <laughs> um, okay, so we met, I don't know, what, three, four years ago? No, we met at 2015 probably. That's when I joined the WTF Accelerator yes, startup. Yes. 2015 officially. 2016, I'm talking a bit more, but 2015, I guess we met each other, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah five years ago. Yeah, about five years ago. Um, so the interesting thing about yourself is you had couple of, okay, you have your banking background and startup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, why did you start from the beginning, right? Eh? So, <laughs> where were you born? <laughs> I don't know, I was born on that number. You've got time. <laughs> sure, sure. So, now I look in Malaysia, and I'm born here in Selangor very much so. But I think more about... You need like, to be closer. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Ah, okay. Better? All right. All right. So, yeah, we studied locally as well, but then I go into the banking sector fairly early on, for about like a little bit or so years. I tried to bank, actually, originally. Uh, there was a few years in Singapore. I even worked in Hong Kong in the investment banking for a few years as well. Um, came back to Malaysia. Um, and I think that was in the banking sector as well. And I met an interesting guy. His name was, uh, who is, I think it was a second or your first uh, ever interviewee, Mr. Sam Safi. Oh, Sam. Yeah. So, so I met, and when, what year was that? I guess 2014. Okay. Yeah. So in 2014 is when I met Sam Safi and Kasminder Singh. Uh, and at that point of time in 2014, for the, I think they launched it in 2012. And for a couple of years, it, they launched a company called Pitchin. And that part of time, Pitchin, which you might have from the previous podcast, um, was very much just a rewards crowdfunding site for the first two, three years of its inception, right? So it was a kick in, uh, a bit of a Kickstarter uh, copy from a Malaysian context, right? Because if a Malaysian wanted to raise money on Kickstarter, you need to have a USA or Canada account or whatnot. So Sam and Cash solved that problem with a localized thing over here. I think where it got towards the 2014 time as well, um, it was pretty interesting to see whereby like the regulations was forming to start allowing democratization of financing, right? Which is basically equity crowdfunding, allowing everybody to uh, invest as they like. Now today, we have P2P where everybody can borrow as they like. Now, but early on, it was only as you can invest as you like, right? Because previously, to invest into a startup or invest into an SME, not, it's not available, right? If I wanted to go and only own 10% of a laundromat, it simply wasn't a deal I could even uh, get access to, right? right? Everything was privately, company per se. You left and then joined them? Pitching, so, yes. uh, Okay, so the story was that like, towards 2014 was when they started engaging with the Securities Commission, along with a few other players to so start the idea. Then, I was in Afin. I was a head of department in Afin, actually. I was head of department for currency swaps and foreign deposits. My, my, my kind of work, treasury and investment banking kind of stuff. Um, and, but I knew, I knew cash and cash introduced me to Sam. And they were starting to like go a lot more serious of upgrading pitching from just a reward funding flight to even an equity crowdfunding, a fintech to say, right? Oh, cash was a family friend. Right, yeah. So we managed to cash and I was actually just helping out cash because I was the finance guy. Sam's a lawyer, cash is the businessman and I was just the, the finance accounting guy. So I was like, helping them out of here for free, just here and there, constantly here and there. And I think towards the end of 20... When was it? No, actually 2013 I started talking to them. 2014 is when we started firming things up. So I think in 2013 I started talking 
right? And, uh, and you uh, Well, put it this way: the they was about the time to come in 2013 to submit in the application. Yeah, because 2015, anyways, 2013 to submit the application. 2014, uh, 2013 building it up. 2014 to submit the application, right? And submit the application, you got to name all the main key responsible person for a new licensee. All right. Uh, so obviously, due to conflicts of interest, you cannot be a director or senior banking official in any other bank or financial institution if you want to be a key responsible person in a new licensee. So I decided that, uh, basically, long story short, I got married <laughs> roughly around that time as well. Oh, uh, I in 2015, yeah, I was engaged, getting married at the time, and kind of did a deal with my wife. And if I want to do any of this non celibate crap, <laughs> he I was to do it before. I thought you quit first, then you married. No, no, no. no. It was different. It was. No, it was. Getting engaged and like we're gonna do all this kind of non salary nonsense, you know, and like uh, unscrew of your future yeah, nonsense, make sure we don't bloody hell have kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's what it came down to. So I was like, okay, two to three years is our targeted plan before we started having kids. Yeah. Uh, today I have two lovely kids, but before that I was like, okay, la, if there's gonna be a time to suffer without any salary, you better do it when you don't have kids, right? Like that was my thought process. So that's how it's started. But she was working, right? She's working. She still works today. I mean, without her, I'd probably be a bankrupt a long time ago. But yeah, that's not the point. <laughs> but she works in Singapore one more as well, earning a pretty decent salary as well. So, so of course, of course, of course. Right? And then I mean, whatever savings I had to say and all that, this I joined a journey for a couple of years. Uh, so that I became the founding COO. Uh, uh, for Pichin and it's obviously Sam is the CEO and I guess it's the CFO CSO right uh, so that's the origin story right so it was a very interesting time because um, it was a pretty big jump for me and it was also started because I did my MBA uh, so I started doing my MBA in about 2012 2013 at the behest of uh, my at that point of time bank the senior senior management uh, a bit like they were guiding me to be like oh how to be senior management kind of like, oh, and the MBA was a required kind of thing they wrote a sponsorship letter and that kind of stuff so I go to the MBA I did it in a strike light at Glasgow Scotland and yeah and while doing it do you have to pay that back uh, not really we had a pretty good uh, escape because I didn't join another competitor or whatever I worked for them for a bit of time as well right? yeah. so yeah, yeah it was a very friendly thing because it was more of like that bank doesn't have a clear set out bond scholarship program yeah, it's only available for certain senior management or something. Before like that, you had not been in business yourself? No, no, no at all. No, at all, no. It's the MBA actually is as, as lame as this sounds. It's actually the MBA that's the spot. Because when I was doing my MBA, then it reminded me how big the world was. I think that's the main takeaway from my MBA. Because like, you know, when you're like 15 years or 12 years, just financial services and what more, a investment banker like me, right? Earning decent money and just living in a little cocoon, just focusing on work and making money per se, right? Then suddenly you do the MBA and like, oh, that guy's from Petronas, that guy's from Shell, that guy's from... Oh, I see the world. This is, the world's really big, man. I see banking is just, yeah. Banking is just one particular sector, right? Yeah, so actually that's a pretty big thing for me, right? So doing my MBA, making a few non-banking friends, very important as well. Started opening up my mind. I became like best buddies with this guy who's a regional supply chain manager, Johnson & Johnson. Very different perspective on life. And it's really those kind of things as well, right? And doing my, even for my uh, MBA program, my dissertation, me and, and my couple other friends, we even started like a startup uh, journey within it as well. Okay. Uh, it was called Jome Fishing. And we even uh, go into the accelerator. We even got uh, funding by the government as well to actually help uh, a lot of the tourism fishing. So recreational fishing. The agenda was more about like increasing the income for recreational fishermen going on fishing tours for when masalis come in and so on. So we even did that kind of stuff as well. Company is still running till today by one partner in Penang, but mainly now more e-commerce and specialized tours, right? Hmm. Uh, because uh, the travel agency part about it, I know I'm going to do those details, but the travel travel agent part about it, which we didn't want to go down and become a travel agent basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we even did that per se. That really sparked me a lot. And that also was one of the major, major factors when Sam, I was looking at Sam like, yeah, okay. So you got yeah. the bug, right? Yeah, 100%, 100%. I joined that and uh, so 
one of the biggest things was like sitting down with Sam and Cass and just writing out the whole application forms and like trying Those to create the business model. Of course, of course, of course. I was part of the dream. I was going to sell other people the dream as well. <laughs> but yeah, so it's very interesting that like, just and because I'm a treasury guy, mainly like uh, foreign exchange, fixed income and all that, this is equity, man. I remember still sitting down with Sam and Cass going through all those uh, equity laws, reading through a game, making sure we're not in breach of anything per se, writing out the exception points and we submitted in. I think me, Cass and Sam are very proud that all of the, like, the 30 plus submissions, only six were licenses. SE, at that point, we believe we were the thickest and the longest, most comprehensive. Uh, it was purely that? written by Sam Cass and me. No lawyer, no outsider at all. So it's a pretty fun thing of writing a full-blown like 50 pages. Oh, yeah. So that's very interesting. We're going through the whole process, understanding the regulations and what we said. So that went up pretty well. I'm very happy we have pitching this today. Obviously, I'm no longer with pitching in terms of operational perspective. I'm just a minor shareholder and I'm still obviously very involved. Why, why did you on the operations? Back from ah, I think that was more to do with circumstance, right? So I think that was about 2015 openizing. Uh, I was very happy. It's been quite a long process, right? So bear in mind that it's over two year process already, right? No license, like getting this, la, da, 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 guy waste investment money, la, all the whole process, right? Then we finally started it, got one or two small deals, and the biggest deal we got into was Kakitangan back in those days. We got three million done within a couple of days with Effen. Uh, so at that point of time, I felt that, like, oh, Things are pretty validated. Like this is actually working per se. We made a couple of hires. We had CFO come in. Henry looked to help us out as well. Because um, in fact, the whole premise wasn't even proven yet. Right? Correct. Would people even invest in? in oh, even get an exit? Yeah, 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 per se, right? Yeah. So, so when that happened per se, and things were moving up per se pretty well. Uh, that was the time of 2015. So in 2015 as well. Uh, PG hasn't really launched live. You're still like, getting the regulatory approval. Take take a while. Launched in the middle of 2015, right? Um, it's pretty bored, man. <laughs> because after a lot of the heavy work to send in the application form and all that, nothing you can do until the regulators give you the go. Right? You can all do, you can postulate and plan all you like. Yeah. There is a brief, quite a long period between the time when you submit everything fully ready and you're just answering the replies of the regulator, like, right? And that's like a one email a week. <laughs> you get what I mean? So that's the part of time when uh, Sam and Cass uh, pushed out WTF Accelerator a lot more. I'm sure you talked about that last person. So the first batch ever came out in January 2015. And just because I was like, nothing was really going on. Obviously, we Sam and Cass blessing as well. I partnered with another banker, Adrian Yap, uh, and we created a company called, a startup called Money Match. Right. Uh, and then applied in for the Sandbox back then, right? So going to the Sandbox in January 2015. How did, how did that idea that idea okay so that idea was more like I was already full blown into pitching right uh, I still have a few banking friends here and there and I was quite close with like Adrian's wife and Adrian as well we all like friends and all that I think it was just like four of us like double dating somewhere and all that and I think it was more like uh, I had already decided but after my MBA like no I want to give it a try to non-banking kind of stuff and financial services is fine for sure but don't want to be employed under a bank that's my thought process um, and I think Adrian had a, a very similar mindset as well because right? he's been treasury for quite a while almost like 10 years plus uh, and it's like, yeah, the long story short, the bonuses aren't what they used to be, mate. <laughs> so I mean, like, when you are like a trader or structural and all that, like, the primary reason you're doing a job in a bank when you're a treasury guy is money, right? Right. So obviously, when the bonuses are all kept and kind of stuff, it's like, you question yourself a bit. 
like, okay, obviously I didn't do my job because I love. There's no such thing as a born trader who loves his job, lah. Please, lah. Go fly kites, lah. Right? Yeah, yeah, please, right? Maybe if you're a natural born gambler, you might be addicted to it, right? But generally, generally, nobody in treasury investment banking really loves their job, lah. We all need for the big money and the intellectual challenge or whatever it is, right? So I think that that's the point, right? When the money takes away, like, why exactly am I putting my, my heart and passion, yeah, the amount of time and effort and brains and intellect I have to put into this, right? That's the thought process, right? So uh, it's more about like getting out of banking. Uh, and we had a few like really daft ideas that didn't work out. Things like RFID kind of IoT kind of turned in the early days. It was a waste of time per se. Uh, and then we saw the rise of TransferWise, which at that point of time in the year 2015, January or end of 2014, November to be exact, when we came up with the phrase money match. Uh, there was, I, you can double check on this, there was no such thing as the word fintech. It wasn't commonly used, right? It was just financial technology or technology in finance or whatever. It was just, oh, you are a finance startup in the world of tech, right? It, that kind of stuff, right? Uh, so it was not popular at all, right? And we um, we went through it. Uh, we saw TransferWise getting really, really big. We thought like, hey, you're bringing institutional level FX pricing down to the retail level. I understand the concept behind it. I'm pretty sure we can do the same as well. So before they come over here to Malaysia, so today is in Malaysia. So before they come over here to Malaysia, let's make sure like uh, if we're going to do something and it's something that we really know because we're both 10 years each over of FX experience, it should be this, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so that Zenny realized he wasn't so straightforward, uh, couldn't get it kicked off in 2015, very, very, almost died how many times, very fortunate uh, angel investor, his name is Damien Center. Uh, he came in quite early on in the middle of 2015 uh, to just give us uh, some angel investment number one um, but most importantly is that like a lot of the angel investment we use it for tech development so we didn't take any salaries we didn't start anything per se we started building up the platform over time going through the multiple challenges of having a so take a step back a little bit for people who don't know about Money Match the, the, the how, does that, how does that okay sure so for Money Match it's um well, and most people here probably know TransferWise so you probably start off with like TransferWise so don't even know alright great so let me put it this way. If you are in the UK or in London, right, it is surprisingly relatively expensive to change money and send money abroad. They charge you a couple of pounds or whatever else. It's not as cheap as people think, right? Um, so let's just say I'm a European working in London, which is the, how TransferWise started, by the way. Right? Uh, the founder... Before the, Brexit. Yes, well, well before Brexit. The co-founder of TransferWise, an Estonian guy who was Skype employee number three. So you're working in London a long time and all tech guys and all that kind of stuff. Right? And the cost was just ridiculous. And like, wait a minute, France is just there. How can the cost be so much, right? So then suddenly we looked to the idea of like, why does banks cost so much money? Send money across, right? So obviously be a former banker. So I will be starting to criticize banks a bit per se, right? So I think a lot of it was underlying and understanding why is the cost of transferring money needed to be so high Especially if it's not something complicated, it's something really, really simplistic, right? It's just sending, like, sending pounds to Europe. It doesn't really jive per se. So that's how they started off. They built it up really, really well. They helped lower down the cost of basically remittances, right? So that's in the UK, right? When you come over here to Malaysia, it's a fairly different uh, ballgame, uh, landscape as well. Uh, we have something like, well, documented or undocumented, something like four to five million migrants, slash foreign workers, slash whatever you want to call them, say, like, legal or not legal, right? What that means is that it drives a very large foreign worker remittance uh, industry. Right, so today in Malaysia is something outbound. like outbound, right? So it's something like sixty billion, whatever else it is. Merchant Trade is the largest, doing seven eight billion, and a few other major players. Right? All these guys, ninety five to ninety nine percent of all their flows are all foreign worker. So primarily serving corridors like Bangladesh, Indonesia. So today, when you talk about remittance, what a person understands of remittance usually.
globally is where a Bangla, Indo, or perhaps an Indian expatriate or whatnot might go and do a remittance. That's the usual understanding per se. In today's day and age, well, as you've got Big Pay with their multi currency cards and RSB with their multi currency cards and all that, but generally, you're sending large scale remittances per se, and Big Pay's limit is like 1,005. It's not really good for remittances mm. per se, right? Uh, so yeah, Big Pay's price will be cheaper than mine, but now my customers have moved to them because the limits are so small. It's a different use case, right? Our customers are sending like 30,000 ringgit kind of hits, right? So, um, that's basically sending money in terms of like how to send money in the remittance sector, right? So when we go into the licensing, right, the first thought we thought about it is that what makes TransferWise, which is my original point, different from the traditional remittance shop and different from the banks, right? Is no different than the e-commerce model killing physical shopping malls. It's exactly the same. And it's powered by something called electronic KYC. So the traditional business model for all remittance companies and all kinds of banks, as regulated by the industry, by the regulators and the central banks, is that the KYC process is that individual must walk into a bank once or must walk into a remittance once to hand in the ID and then the officer on the other side will certify whether this person is as per the ID. That's just KYC works for remittance, right? Because just to understand that uh, remittance sector has one of the highest ever anti-money laundering and anti-counter-terrorist financing and AMLA in general per se. Why? It's because remittance is usually the source my laundering. It's how people move money abroad. It's layering, right? So obviously the regulation is extremely strict and stringent on that, right? Um, so that was the model over there and TransferWise brought in electronic KYC. Therefore, just through the mobile app alone, a Brit anywhere from Brighton or Scotland Island could register uh, and send money to a bank transfer. Right, so that was one of the primary problems that we identified here in Malaysia as well uh, back in about 2016. What was that KYC process online? Oh, all through the mobile app. Yeah, all through the mobile app. So also, taking yeah. a picture of yes, the And I'll go through the MoneyMess app as you'll see that it's like that as well, right? Yeah. I'll go through that about it. Tell you how yeah. it goes through, right? But uh, so that was what they did, right? So then we say, oh, all right, that sounds pretty fucking straightforward. I mean, sorry, you got you edit that out, by the way. That sounds pretty straightforward, right? Like, all right, just do implement EKYC. I'll be cheaper than the banks. Yeah! Go talk to Ben Nagada. not quite how life works here. That's not quite how life works, right? But thankfully... We've actually been through three different governor changes, you know. So it's pretty interesting. We have had so many different ones, right? Uh, there was a governor at a point of time who was very interested in pushing the innovation yep. uh, standpoint, but right? By then, the fintech, right? Yes, right. By then, the fintech, right? And uh, yeah, and the real start to how money Mat started off is thankfully down to MAS. Because MAS started the regulatory fintech sandbox and every single central bank in the region got jealous. Yes, <laughs> 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 UK original. I mean, ASEAN, ASEAN, right? Yeah. So that automatic super jealous. Lah. So automatically, you know, we launch it pretty it, soon, per se. It's not jealous. Oh, not jealous. We have our own, I'm sure yeah. we had our own romance. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, no, 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 no. yeah. yeah that's, a, that's probably true because UK already started it, but definitely Singapore kickstarted it because when they launched it, everybody's like, oh, I don't know how to launch it myself now, right? That so, was your first... Uh, Yes, precisely, precisely, we were there, exactly, right, yeah, so that's how it started off, yeah, and then, uh, so previously before that point, actually, because Adrian and I are fairly, uh, we're ex-bankers, right, we're not like a bunch of kids, we always knew from day one that we're not going to do anything without regulatory approval, so since 2016, actually, we have been talking to Bank Negara, before the fintechs and most everything, so they have known us to be the irritating ex-banker guys, asking for ridiculous UK-like things, which there was no intention to do it at the moment time, because uh, I don't want to talk too much about it, but Negara has bigger plans for EKYC for banking sector. There's much more bigger things, right? Uh, but we push about it. It's going to take forever, mate. It's not, it's just, yeah, we're, we're never going to have EKYC until all the banks do it. It's, what, it's year 2020. Banks still don't have EKYC to today. So you, this is a little school, right? So we were like pitching like, hey, you got to allow it, right? Not, you're never going to get people like us to play in the field, right? If you're going to do the big, you know, national ID kind of thingy, right? Uh, so thankfully, uh, Negara listened. And from, I would say that we, 
we've been dealing in the Ghana since 2016, right? And we have 100%, and I'm not saying this is a cut, right? Witnessed a very clear change in how Nagara has been handling this. No doubt, man. When we started talking to them, till like middle of 2016, when they started having a proper uni, and the director asked now, this was so different, man. Now they literally support us. They literally help us with regulatory issues. Like, you need to do, like, wow, it's so different, man. Nagara has changed tremendously. Like, they literally support us, policy street, all the kind of guys. Literally, they really help us out, man. Uh, so it's very, very big change. It really helped us out a lot. So in 2016, we started talking to Nagara about the sandbox, right? And I think they opened it up officially in early 2017, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember. Yeah, should be around that time. And uh, obviously, because we were only talking there for almost a year, we were invited to, right? And yeah, we were the first ever the, to participate. Yeah, the, what? The, 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 the paper, the draft. Yeah, 2017. Yes, correct. Launching for application in 2017. So, uh, immediately we launched our 2017. First ever applicant to get in uh, as well. Uh, yeah, first ever bets to go in and then first ever bets to go in, uh, get uh, the first four as well. Yeah, so immediately, because we've been talking to Nagara for a while before that as well. Yeah, so that was pretty good. So our proposal is very simple. Let us do EKYC in Malaysia, right? Uh, so that was the time we were in the FinTech Regulatory Sandbox. So two years. So we've successfully graduated. Actually, no one else has graduated. Uh, and when we graduated, um, we were actually the first to actually have live EKYC. So, in the entire Malaysia, right, we've been doing EKYC for two years. Our data set is incomparable to anyone else. No matter what anybody say, right, we've actually been doing it. <laughs> and for real life, everything we're really reporting, four sentences ratio out to better now, we are really pros at it, right? So, how many... Yeah. How many customers do you have? 17,000 or something like that? I say, yeah. Because a lot of the public problem with like for electronic KYC, worldwide data sets for official matching algorithms, is primarily white faces, right? Or I, I fear to say this yellow faces. Because a lot of the technology is actually built out of the US and China, right? So a lot of the fantastic EKYC algorithms and all that is doesn't really surprisingly have enough uh, brown or even darker brown faces. Uh, yeah, differentiating, it sounds really bad, but it's the truth about it, right? Differentiating brown faces, differentiating Indian faces, is really out of the scope of the majority of Chinese people. We all look the same, right? Asians all look the same. Basically, yeah. It wasn't Asians. Yeah, basically, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think the thing about it is that everybody <laughs> of the same colour roughly looks the same. Yeah, so you need humongous data sets of the same colour to be able to have so many differentiating points in the face. Roughly around that, right? So, what... What happened there was that the world's two biggest companies, one of it is called NetVerify, but Jumio is funded by Eduardo Severin. They powered TransferWise in the early days, powered a few basic guys and all that. Uh, they were pretty pricey. Uh, we got a, another British partner, they're called Onfido, O-N-F-I-D-O. So that time, they were just a small CVC on Fido out of Cambridge. Uh, really, really smart guys. We partnered them very, very early on, but they were out to Bangladesh, got approvals and all that. Sorry? How did you connect with those guys? Oh man, I just Google basically, right? I just Google all the list of major EQS providers, talk, 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 talk. And back then in year 2016, handful, nobody. Now today, everybody and their mother might offer EKYC. But in year 2017, no. The real serious players were like, only two or three major players, right? Uh, and we're very proud of, um, to grow together with Onfido, right? So today, Onfido is really, really large. Onfido today, power, in Malaysia, powers Big Pay, for example, one of the many others. Uh, we were the first ever partners over here. Uh, they now power Revolut. And recently, as of January, they have taken over almost half of all transferwise countries as well. So, Onfido is now one of the world leading uh, in terms of facial... When I say EKYC, right, I don't mean all of EKYC. EKYC is a complicated process. I just mean the facial matching algorithm. Because that way you need the AI database for that. That's a startup by itself, right? There's so many other aspects to it, like all our sanction screenings, our APS, with Thomson Reuters, Infinity, yada, yada. There's a lot of different different aspects that come to the full-blown EKYC. But the facial matching algorithm part is the one that we work with the British partner per se, right? So that's our main, main innovation here in Malaysia. Um, when we first started launching in the middle of 2017, we got our approvals, was electronic KYC. That's what we're known for, actually. <laughs> 
2017 was the launch. Yes. How was so between you and Adrian? How was the how was the team like um, growing from you know in the 2015? Oh, sure. Wow. Well, well, so, uh, so you guys had an idea at Pichin in 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did it go? Yeah, it was only two of us had the idea. Uh, then we we brought in another pal, uh, Fazil Fuad. Who was running C27 at that point of time? He still wants C27, so it's a very big firm right now, I would say. Uh, he's now no longer with us in a co founding sense, uh, but the name, the colors, everything is him, by the way. He's a design guy, he's a creative guy, right? Uh, but but he's, it's a small thing to us, and he's focused on his big business right now, his own digital agency. Uh, but three of us, I think the first team that we built up was to have six packs in a co working space. We identified that to bear, to run this company as a most bare, bare, bare minimum, we could do it with six uh, jokers. Uh, me and Angel without salary first and then uh, six jokers first. So bootstrap uh, start. Uh. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the very, very start. Oh, so we got a bit of... Oh, no. So, okay. So we got 50,000 ringgit from WTF Accelerator mm. in the earliest days. Uh, then we got about half a million ringgit from the angel investor. But uh, that money was pure technology because when we talked about the band together, right? Uh, no such thing as MVP. Uh. So that's another, another lesson that we learned. Uh, when you're doing fintech, uh, when you want to work with a uh, regulator, uh, uh, do this kind of thing, all that, uh, uh, don't mind MVP. Uh. Don't mind MVP. Uh, because the first thing they ask you is, uh, uh, please show me your external penetration report. Uh, you can also account with your company. Uh. Uh, so today, we are audited by Deloitte, by PwC IT Security. So we are really, we are two different big fours are auditing us. We have different external compliance audits. So the level has changed quite a fair bit. But back then, the earliest days, it was just six of us. Uh, we felt we could do six of us to start off. Uh, the plan was always to go up to like 10 to 12. Uh, and if things work out really, really well, by the year of like 2019, last year, we should have about 20 staff. So and, uh, this at that year, point, when you had the six of you, what was the countries that you were focusing on or you wanted to start? Malaysia with? out to just uh, Singapore and China and I think one more currency, Indonesia. Okay. Yeah, just uh, basically because... Why those countries? Oh, because we had... Oh, so how it works is that we have different, different partnerships and accounts overseas and whatnot per se, right? So we had different, different real worlds or real ways to get it cheaper. Um, but I think more about it was more interesting is that like um, so we got different different reels and then we're doing Philippines and Indonesia and we're doing all the different, different reels right but what was more interesting is that like when we started off in the middle of 2017 um, we were primarily focused on retail customers and a few SME customers here and there per se uh, and we obviously when you first start off EKYC all these tech people it's not coming in like, all these people first mover and one taste blah 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 right but I think by the end of no by early 2018 was when we started facing real problems uh, that's when then the fun starts. Lah. That's, when you, that's when you see whether the startup grow or not, lah, right? Because it's easy to launch a new one, right? Everyone, hoo-ha, hoo-ha, hoo-ha. We raised 2 million ringgit in a, in a proper seat round. Uh, the operation, lah. so 2 million ringgit to pay the salaries, to start everything up per se. From a, from a transaction standpoint, how was that at the start? Oh, at the start, oh, brilliant, of course. Brilliant. Everybody got me using us, per se, and all that kind of stuff. And then our okay. business... A few hundred just to start off in the first uh, few days, we'll see. A few days already? First few days already, yeah. Because it's the hype. It's the hype thingy, right? Yeah. So you get a lot of the hype thingy. Uh, but these are not real, real transactors. Because you got, oh, I'm going to send my money to my son in Australia, a few hundred million to test it out, right? But the real, real guys who send monthly, uh, that one is, yeah. So that's a different thingy, right? Yeah. So we started off and like, ah, oh, there's a lot of people coming in. Oh, it sounded really, really good. Uh, but very, very early on, we realized that, oh, okay, this model isn't really making sense to us, right? Uh, because, long story short, I think that, um, so I guess because Adrian and I aren't young kids anymore and because we started Money Match 2015 and launching in the middle of 2017, it's quite a long time, right? So we gone through quite a few different things. So I think the first thing we realised very quickly was that like, if the fundamentals don't make sense, we're not going to go ahead with it, right? right? It sounds very simple, right? Uh, sounds very simple, huh? I can count the amount of uh, successful Series B, Series C startups to today who don't even have uh, economic fundamentals that make sense, huh? Which is very simple. Your APU minus your CAC equals what? 
Uh, yeah, so uh, very early on. But that's not the point. That's not the point. Sure, sure, the point sure. is the data. Data. Sorry, sorry. So, but I guess, yeah, I guess in our game, we didn't really think about that. So you guys were actually quite traditional. That because we're ex-backers, yeah, yeah. Right? So, very so early on, we saw the... Revenue minus cost is yeah, profit. Yeah. We saw the output minus the CAC for the retail customers. Huh? It's tough battle, man. And why is it a tough battle, right? Because... As they is everybody postulates one postulate all oh, you like lah projection to senang aja right I uh, come to real business then you really realize real real people oh the rich guy will use your service one time to try you all EQYC cool 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 but why does he use every bloody month ah uh, he just busy global banking lah Citibank global banking lah preferred rates lah this lah that lah not so straightforward the wealthy only got preferred rates or the kind of stuff the middle income guys. If their sons are not in Australia, they're not going to be sending out money. The uh, foreign workers, it's a bloody red ocean. Merchant trade value are way cheaper than even me till today. Right? It's a red ocean, massive war. And so not suddenly, including yeah. those little shops inside yeah. there. Little shops on the side, endless right? amount of shops. Uh, general people still go to a bank to send 15 ringgit for a swift tea out. It's just general, right? They realize that, oh wow, okay. At that time, Instagram, uh, now it's called NIUM, but Instagram launched in Malaysia. And Instagram uh, is very similar to us actually. Uh, Singapore originally, Australia originally, but a bunch of Indians from India uh, set up some in Singapore and Australia. And now they've already raised a series B already. They're very similar to us in quite a few countries. And their market is mainly retail. Very big among the Indian expatriates, right? So, came over here, Great Ocean, Instagram was dropping price. Today, transfer price is here, everybody dropping price. And we were like, oh, wow, this is fun. So, okay, so we also just drop price and just fight with everybody because we thought that's how the startup was supposed to be, like, right? Yeah. Oh, let's just drop our ways and go fight with everybody, right? Oh, money is running out, like, money is running out, like, no problem, like, bro. Right, so, I think that it was then, like over time, the first six months or so, we noticed that just our handful of SME customers, the Apu mate was like, wow, okay. And they were not sending to all these boring countries like India, and they were sending to Europe or China. It's a very different market per se, we're importing stuff, right? So they were like, eh, the cost to acquire these uh, SMEs was extremely high, like 3x over the CAC for retail. Mm. Right, uh, it's still very high till today. SMEs are very expensive to acquire on board everything, right? But the hapu is <laughs> it's humongous, right? So when you yeah. say the acquiring cost is expensive, so did you have like a big team going around to get these guys on board, or what was the? Yes, for SMEs, yes. So today we have something like thirty men sales team moving, uh, divided hunter farmer teams and all that kind of stuff, right? But even back then, just a couple of guys as well. Just I'm just being like super China man and thinking like, oh, the my sales guys are salaries versus how many guys are getting in. Yeah. Just thinking from a that kind of China man perspective, I'm like, eh, actually, even though I lose so much money on the SME onboarding, not more bad, oh. And somehow every month is winning bigger amounts and the banks are liking us more because the bigger amounts coming in. So, so that was, that's where we are at, right? So that was when we were doing like a few million ringgit a month, mainly retail focus and all that. Um, so today we are quite a different outfit. Today we have something like 70 over full-time staff. Uh, two different offices in Bangsa TDDI. Uh, we do over a billion ringgit a year per se. Um, and the split in the billion between retail and... Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So even in the... Some verbal words, lah, but I can confirm with you, right, if you add the B2B transaction flows of every single non-bank maintenance uh, company in Malaysia from number one, all that, they don't even come out to my monthly B2B flows. That's how big we are for B2B, right? So we are the largest single non-bank B2B cross-border player now. We are in systematic risk to bank in We are no longer small players anymore, right? We're now in the billion-dollar club for Bangladesh, right? Like top five or top six largest maintenance companies now, right? So we found this interesting niche, right? Whereby nobody was really taking an effort, and this is going to sound really lame, but it's really true, man, 
to target the underserved SMEs. It's going to sound really lame, but it's really true, man. That's our mission, man. Because everybody always just cares about the foreign workers, these underserved guys, unbanked guys, typical SOP. Oh, a poor foreign worker got no bank account. It is true, the poor foreign worker got no bank account. But that's probably because his uh, evil employer is paying him in cash to avoid tax, right? So there's so many fundamental problems you're facing over there, right? But the fact of the matter is, Malaysia is a country with over 900,000 plus SMEs. And this is where we're going to start making the banks. And the banks, quite simply, do not border in any circumstance to serve these not-so-profitable SMEs. So, help me understand from an SME standpoint, what business do they have in emitting money? Okay, so I'll give you a simple... That There's many, many sectors, right? Obviously, right? Uh, so, some of our bigger-name customers are T-Life. Hmm. Right? So, where does T-Life get their stuff from? They might have changed suppliers, but it's still from Taiwan. <laughs> so, making... Uh, as a former banker, you might actually know that like making um, overseas payments to different countries have a different cost factor, right? Making payments to Taiwan is ridiculously expensive. Maybank, CMB, is ridiculously expensive because it's something that is... This is something only Adrian and I understand because this is it's a NDF currency, there's restrictions, there's FEA, blah, blah, blah. blah. With D-Lab, it's not quite an SME lah. Uh, they are bigger, bigger area of the SME, right? Yes. Okay. So this is an example. So FMB is one of our major segments, right? So an example, another guy is um, I can't say the name, but you guys, one of the largest in oyster importers here, right? With major shops in every single mall per se, right? Oysters, right? So where do oysters generally come from, right? New Zealand, or in his case, his case, New Zealand, a few islands and France, but mainly New Zealand and USA, Poland, Oregon, and stuff like that, right? No idea. Okay, okay. mainly New Zealand and okay. USA for him, right? right? There's France and Ireland in the sense, but primarily New Zealand. And uh, USA as well. He makes a lot of uh, payments out to Poland. We got oysters and so on and so forth, right? Um, here's the problem. He needs freshness. He needs deliveries every single week, multiple times a week, right? His uh, importers, uh, sorry, his exporters out there are the various different different farms. So he's constantly making almost quite small payments. So his business might be... Just small oyster farms all over the place. Uh, example, or distributors out there per se, right? So his business might be 20 million ringgit a month, but... He has to split up against yeah, like yeah. the 10 million of the cost might come from so many different ones. Right? Yeah. So his per ticket might come to only like 100,000 ringgit, 70,000 ringgit, right? And this is usually where the banks never, ever, ever bother to give a special rate. It's always counter rates and it's always a swift or 700 ringgit, right? So that's really our customer sets of the FMB segment. But one of the biggest, biggest segments we have is that like we are probably the single largest, um, well, we're not a bank, but like banker to actually the travel agents, uh, agency industry. So we've been partners with Mata for a long time. Uh, I would dare say about, I can't give you exact numbers because it's listing, but almost, almost up to 70% of every single travel agent in Malaysia is using money mats today. Mm. So it's quite so a big sector. Right? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. so, so why? We are also today the single largest non-bank um, uh, Hajj and Umrah payer. Money match. We pay Saudi Arabia way cheaper than Maybank or CMB can ever come close to us, right? So this is an example, right? So and but for that, ah, so that's individual or retail? No, no, no. This is the travel. The, oh, the travel the, agent. The travel agent. Right, 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 yeah, right. Because so our specialty is that when you go to a bank, right? Maybank, for example, I like to use Maybank. Just <laughs> <laughs> a curious thing: seventy percent of all my customers come from Maybank CMB. What does that tell you? Oh. And no customer will ever come to me unless I'm cheaper uh, and faster. Uh. Obviously, why? I'm no brand name, right? So where does that tell you it comes from, right? So this is why the, the, it's an endless disruption to go to, right? And my guys are right now in Kota Kinabalu, so it's an endless, like, oh my God, oh, it's even easier to do more customers over there, right? They, even they are more underserved, right? Because, okay, put it this way, right? Uh, generally, a bank, and it's not about me, any bank is the same, I'm a banker, so, right? Like, for so much of my life. We look at wallet size of customers, right? Now, you are a customer, you come to me, you open an account, you don't take letter of credit, you don't ask for financing. You are a useless customer to me. You have nothing. 
you just keep your deposit with me, right? And now you are asking to do a telegraphy transfer for 32,000 ringgit. You're asking me for a special price. Hey, hello. <laughs> Where did you come from? This is the fact. This is the real life factor for 50,000, 100,000 SMEs. Like, you know, at the start, where you were looking at it for, it's a bit more technology play, right? So the e-coin, KYC, now that you've gone into this niche of SMEs, big and small, right? Yeah. So that technology part doesn't really come into play anymore. Now so the technology part, uh, oh no, so the technology part is evolved into very deep and uh, it's more deep tech now that we're doing. So where I'm getting for example, like in the entire of Malaysia, only two FIs have the permission to send money around the world using blockchain technology. And that's CIMB and Money Match. So it's not essentially what our level are. Like. I mean, Maybank something can't even come up to us when it comes to blockchain implementation. Of so the, a lot of the deep tech stuff, like how we move money to Europe within 3-4 hours, no bank can come close to us. right? Like, so that's where the deep tech comes in per se. So a lot of it is very heavy back-end infrastructure that we spend on. We send money to more countries, get this, than TransferWise. Today, TransferWise is one of my partners. We are no longer competitors anymore. So we are a very different player right now. So um, one bank in Malaysia, uh, so right now we are going so big that whereby banks are becoming our customers, right? So in the entire of the Malaysian scene, no bank has any remittance arm other than CIMB. Only CIMB has a speed send arm. Everybody else is on MoneyGram or Western Union or one of the typical providers would say, right? So our selling point is to say, hey, stop using this Western Union MoneyGram. It's a thousand year old service, man. So it's, it's ridiculous, so right? So, so let's, let's stop. Okay, like, these days, if you talk about tech, you can't talk. Yeah. You cannot avoid blockchain, right? For now, blockchain, blockchain AI stuff and all that. Yeah. Okay, like, it's still a concept. It's still sure, sure, sure. All that, right? But it sounds like, hey, you know what? With you guys, yeah. we are actually very on the front end of blockchain. We are not talking about crypto. That's our first. Do know it's better. So, so, it's so go, so go backwards a bit in time. Talk to me about that blockchain. Oh, well, the blockchain adventure, to be very frank with you, is very, very ripple driven. We partnership. Okay. The reason why is because very early on, we signed up with Stella Lumas, with Ripple, a few other major guys, and all that. And very early on, we realized that all of them were going to be failures. Very simple. All will be failures because the only one who was very serious about blockchain technology to power cross borders was Ripple. Uh, today, so Ali is, I mean, uh, Ali pay all is, but back then, please lah, no one else was serious about it. All the different bank partners. Correct. Ripple went in properly. Bank partners, higher top-notch guys. So they have many failings, of course, lah, right? But we working with them, and then, so yeah, so basically, uh, we got into the lowest end of the platform, and now we've been upgraded. Today, we are one of their major primary partners. We were globally the first ever uh, financial institution in the entire global world to ever have a blo- uh, cloud-hosted blockchain. So, for example, um, to host the kind of blockchain and keep the data sovereignty requirements by the central bank regulators, your in-house servers are pretty pricey, right? Uh, CME spent X amount or something like that, right? Uh, we actually, after such a long debate, go out, bend the gutter, back, 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 we see became the first globally to ever have all everything on the cloud, right? Approved, fully approved by Benega. So that brings down our cost structure to we said cannot finance anymore. Well, our, first, our cost structure, so the technology is a lot of it about cost structure. So how we like to sell it is that like, um, actually the business that we are in can actually be seen almost like a transportation business, right? Yeah, when you go to HSBC, you go to Maybank or that, you might use a Grab or Grab Premium or Grab Plus per se, whatever it may be, right? But Money Match is more like the public transportation, right? But we are trying to, but the public transportation is usually provided by MoneyGram, Western Union, right? And we will say, ourselves will say, biasly say that, like, those are the dirty, horrible, it's not cheap, like, lousy service per se, right? Use us. We are like MRT, super clean, super fast, super efficient, cheap pricing, so on and so forth. So today, we've already won one very small bank. We're about to win a second bank over here. Two 
top seven banks in Malaysia are in the middle of considering dumping Western Union money going to move over to us as well. Basically, we believe we can talk to every major bank who asked for CIMB because they have speed sand. Uh, and maybe has very deep ties with Western Union, but that's their problem. Very, very deep ties, but that's not my problem. Uh, but aside from those two guys, I can tell you that almost the vast majority of banks, we are very, very deep in talks to replace the entire ecosystem because why use Western Union money? There's no point. It's like using a lousy, outdated system. Your well, Bangla's coming to your, your place to send money to Western Union. No, right? So you're saying, stop using these guys. Right? We are disrupting them. So it's not about TransferWise anymore. So now it's me, TransferWise, Changdu, and a few other players disrupting money going Western Union. That's the tech play. But that's my tech play. I also have my own retail financing business which I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So we actually have two different places. We have Enterprise Solutions which, and we also have... Uh, but Enterprise Solutions is new. And the retail business is our main, main business per se. Are you saying now that from a blockchain standpoint, to that off? Yep. Everything runs on. No, only four or five corridors. I'll say about like almost 15 or 20 percent of our flows might be blockchain based. Does that have a big impact on the rates that you're able to offer? Oh, for sure, for sure, hundred percent. But also depends on the amounts. For example, like um, how the system works is that we pre-fund so. Our money, uh, money match, our win capital requirements are extremely high. It's not a small point. We put a lot of money everywhere, right? So, one example. So, my partner in India, it's a bank. It's the fourth largest non-government bank, if I'm not mistaken. They are also on the blockchain. Uh, so, actually, when I send money to India, it's on the blockchain. But, actually, overlying on that, that's the underlying thing, right? But overlying in a way, I'm just a bank account customer to that large commercial bank in India. It's just that we are choosing to communicate non-SWIFT, but choosing to communicate using um, basically ripples. Okay. Yeah. So it's more of a choice of a medium of communication. So some banks like Japan or you know that are open to be like, yeah, we can communicate, but do have to say SWIFT MT101, MT103s. We accept ripples uh, communication as the same as the SWIFT MT101, MT103s. Do you see that as a groundswell in terms of ripple now being one almost as a de facto standard for within the bank community? Uh, yes, the new challenges will come up, obviously like IBM Worldwire and all that stuff and all that. But just that the amount of headway, it will see themselves as well, but the amount of headway that Ripple has managed to gain, um, is very, they will they will not be alone, but they will definitely be the top two, top three idea for sure. Just a massive, massive headway that they've gained, right? Um, and I think the part about it as well, why they are successful and everybody else is not successful is because early on, they understood that regulations were not comfortable with the crypto element. Yeah. So very early on, they removed the crypto element, right, as you might know, right? So then it became very easy for regulators to accept. They do have a crypto element, but that's only for you if you want to upgrade to ODL, on-demand liquidity. Uh, but that one, yeah. So they made it easy for everybody to be on part. Now, if you want to upgrade and do like on-demand liquidity, sure, you can ask your particular regulator. So there's one test subject going between Mexico and US where the regulators have allowed for on-demand liquidity. On-demand liquidity basically means using crypto now as a basis for rather than using fiat. Yeah. So we are not at that level yet. Uh, but there so are some regulations. Have your exchanges on both ends, That's precisely the problem. You know the whole set of problems. Yeah. So the only way they were looking at it well, honestly was Malaysia Philippines using crypto back because they do have enough exchanges over there. But the problem is over here as well. So there's just too many, too many sets of problems. You had to go to a trading house in Singapore to get extra piece clear. Yada 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 yada. Philippines, it's like yeah. Philippines, right? So I don't know what four years, three four years ago, right? Because because of the a lot of the foreign workers. Yeah. Uh, yes. Probably the largest country that has. Yes. Correct. Yes. Money back. Yes. And there was a lot of blockchain type limited companies yes. coming out from there. Yes. Right? Correct. Correct. Has, has any? Why I'm not heard any that has really. One or all died. One became super successful and bought up by Gojek. Uh, Coin Coinsph. Ah. Okay. So we've been partnered with Coinsph for a long time as well. Yeah. Coinsph is uh yeah crypto e wallet plus remittance as well. Yeah. 
Ah, uh, the white guy. Can't remember as well, but yeah. So that's an example of, I mean, so like, it clearly showed an example. Where so there was like, a lot of experiments. Uh, yeah, of exactly. But there will be a champion. Or maybe sometimes in some cases, maybe two champions. But there clearly was enough for them to be one or two champions. And when the champion came out, Gojek bought him out. Fair game, right? <laughs> bought out, not even invest. Huh? <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. So now, now, 2015, you're your own journey. Eh? So yeah. 2015, you yeah. got the approval from your wife. Approval <laughs> 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 yeah. from wife and then approval from Ben Negara. It's like two different approvals. From me, the first one. Now it's 2020 already. Yeah. So, yeah. Five years yeah. in your yes. journey, right? As yeah. Yeah. So, what next? How? I don't know, man. As far as my wife is concerned, I'm paying myself a salary now, so she doesn't care anymore. He's like, ah, you're no longer useless. <laughs> you're not a contributing member to the family. You're like, okay. okay. Your yeah. money's my money, your money's my money. Come back, come Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, like, I was just telling this to somebody, an uh, investor was asking me earlier, so, oh, like, what's new with you guys and all that kind of stuff? I said, like, I guess the what's new question is something you can only think about when you're pre-A. Like. I think once you finish the A and really to a certain extent, you got a few million and that kind of stuff. So, right? money match now is there? What's we just finished a small series A. Okay. Yeah, about four US or so, right? So, at this stage right now, right, it's life is so standard. It's like really SOP. My life is literally just sell my product, back investors for money, uh, take care of kids. Sell product, back investors for money, take care of kids. Sell investors. <laughs> that's, that's all I do. There's nothing else, right? Literally. And trying to best our best to launch out more products. It's, it's really SOP. Just launching more, get more and more customers, expanding, hire more people, scaling. It's so SOP, right? We got licenses in Brunei, we got licenses in Australia. So I'm traveling now very, very often to Brunei and soon be Australia as well. Uh, New Zealand is targeted, Singapore, Hong Kong. It's just... It's just like, it's, it sounds sexy to an outsider, but when you're inside it, it's like, this is what I do every day, I just sell, sell, sell my stuff, I beg money for investors, you know, like, constantly. I was just at an investor meeting just before this as well. It's just constant. You didn't use some board. So, yeah, it literally is that. It's literally is that. I understand now why my friend uh, chooses less of space after his CVSB <laughs> to do something new. Like, it's a certain point whereby uh, institutional or highly, a highly salaried CEO might do a better job than the founder CEO. This is uh, both Adrian and my very strong belief. So this also needs to be clear. Yeah. Adrian and I are both clear on this, huh? We do not see ourselves as the future management of money match forever. Uh. Yeah. We both go scratch another itch. Yeah. No, but you're right about that, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a few where they say they are startup founders, right? Are good different, inside, right? Different, it's yeah. about hustling, it's about the scale, yeah, but then they yeah. get bored or they don't yeah. have the discipline. Very good point. Very, very good point. It's just like Zuckerberg, he has no discipline. That's why you got Sarah Sandberg to run everything for him, the hustler per se, right? Like, so for me and Adrian, it's more like the two of us, like, in a way, already know that by like, we don't see ourselves as a, as the founder CEO. Kind of stuff. Adrian's the founder CEO per se, yeah. But we are so happy if a Series B investor, Series C investor wants to elect some CEO, some MBA from Harvard, I go, 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 go. go. India from India, MBA from Harvard, knock yourself out. Please, take it over. <laughs> that is our dream. Our dream is to have an India from India here, MBA from Harvard, ah, take it over, take it over. How far away from that day, uh, Three to five years, I would say. Okay. Still, still need to build more value for the company. Not so soon. Not so soon. Not, not things to want to build per se. Still. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's been a fairly interesting journey. Yeah. Uh, well, 70 stuff is one of the... I'll say HR has become the main focal point of our life right now. It's a huh. horrible you thing. About that? What do you mean? No, I mean like, well... Our original plan of raising funds back in 2017 was by January 2020 to be so huge and to have 30 full-time staff. Oh, all of 30? Hmm. Okay. Obviously, that didn't bloody work out, lah, right? Had to change office, lah, upgrade office. All the positions uh, don't work out, right? Yeah, so, so now you are at 70. 71, the last count, if I'm not mistaken, right? Still actively hiring, of course. I'll probably be 100 by middle of the year, per se. Uh, but yeah, maybe about 10 or so in Brunei. And, uh, in, so, uh, so when you're scaling up from a manpower standpoint, what, what do they do? Because obviously... Very good point. Very, very good point. So the first thing we wanted to understand is that like, as we were scaling up and then the work were very, very heavy per se, a lot of manual work and stuff, we were understanding to understand like, eh, wait a minute, we're going to do like more and more stuff and then like, how much manpower does this truly require? Because, uh, how do I put this? Uh, 
I don't put any blame on anyone, but there are a few things which we have to do manually. Uh, regulatory driven or compliance driven. There's no choice around it per se. It's told you cannot do this. You have to eyesight and yeah, by a trained compliance officer. Certain things. Yeah, they need a certain level of like trained compliance officer, a certain level standard to look over certain things. So, it's, so we started growing, right? And I think the first thing we started understanding was like, oh wow, the biggest guy is running a seven and a half billion dollar uh, outbound uh, transaction and he has about like three to four hundred to support that. Right? Out of that, two hundred is already compliance. So I told you earlier, right, our business is so heavy on my laundry. So our compliance are humongous, right? Like, so that's the first understanding. We're like, oh wow, to run that size of business, you need that kind of things, right? And this is audited as well, blah, blah, negative expectations, right? So then we're like, okay, we don't want to do that. How can we go about it, right? Per se, right? So to answer your question, per se, a lot of it has just been planning around how to really scale up uh, and really hire like Matt for the reliable kind of cost and the reliable kind of business. Again, to shortly, sales and marketing kind of stuff. And really try our best to really maximize and optimize the operations and compliance for our day, right? So we are actually really, really proud of the fact that we can actually run such a fairly large business uh, with barely just six operations and barely just a seven or eight compliance officers, right? Like it's very bare minimum. Uh, a lot of automation, per se, and a lot of back end parts about it. Um, the biggest part about it is that uh, unlike every single bank and unlike every single uh, remittance company who like to say they are fintech, 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 uh, we were actually a technology company first. So before anybody else, this sounds so cliche. Yeah, yeah but it's yeah, true. It's so irritating. We happen to transfer money. No, it's so true. We were a tech company. Our first five six people were just coders. Name huh. me like one bank who the first five people were code companies. All everybody lie about it, right? But in money is true. We were just coders. I mean, I'm not a coder, but our first four five guys just coders, nothing else. One project manager and a bunch of coders, no one else. So we are a true blue tech company, really. One, we were just technology, technology. Right? So today, till today, one thing that we have been well, we are very proud about it. Maybe we care, don't care, but internally we really, really care, is that we do absolutely zero outsourcing. Every single line of code from zero to one till today is written in-house, mobile app native, 100%. That we just do not believe in outsourcing. Everything. So, to answer your question, I've got also about a dozen of people who are coders and engineers, unlike majority. So, like, wherever I meet, like, all these other startups, I've like, hey, hey, got 50 people, but two of them doing coding. Don't quite understand how to be able to do it. So you know, we are big, we are actually coders, right? Uh, so we actually got a, a solid team of like eight full stack engineers, uh, led by hair engineering. We got a data science team of just three people as well. But we don't do AI, we just do internal machine learning stuff for our own optimization processes. So there's about 11 full time engineers coding constant, uh, constantly, about just under 20 ops plus compliance as well. So about 30 plus per se, uh, just two accounting. Uh, so about 30 plus per se is the real, real core. 35 per se runs the entire over a billion plus business per se. So where the other 30 plus people sit are all sales and marketing. So we always got like 16, 17 full-time account managers who service, uh, we got cus- a couple of customers in every single state from Malaysia, every single main city. So they're traveling out to Ipoh. I got guys in Ipoh, Kona Kinabalu all the time. Whole holding customers. High touch to be on to high tech. Uh, we have internal uh, customer, so um, internal customer service systems as well. Um, and high hunting team as well. Another 10 guys who are constantly hunting, calling up customers, so giving brand your, awareness. So your big business, uh, sorry, the majority of your business is from Malaysia. SME Malaysia. SME Malaysia sending outwards. Right. Yes, so, correct, correct. when is that going to change? i.e. when are you going to start providing the same service in Singapore? In oh, so we already just started applying it uh, in uh, Brunei. Very soon will be Australia. Singapore, we are applying for the license. Hong Kong applying for All these are applying for licenses and starting off to say, yeah, yeah, correct. How does the, how does the structure right now scale up uh, when you want to do that? So, for example, you want to you know, start yeah. running location. Ah, okay. So, so different, yeah. unfortunately, uh, different countries are completely different, right? So, in Australia, in New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong, we get to operate 100% out of HQ. Just two or three staff in each country. Uh, mainly just compliance. 
right? Uh, and business development, however, that's up to us, right? Because these guys are, if you bring in the volume, sure, they're right, you don't really are fire you pretty fast, right? There's no real requirement compared to the ops guy who has to be around. So from that sense, it's really, really low cost. So the main point of how we've been selling it to investors <laughs> is that uh, we want to be the Malaysian story whereby uh, a global money transfer operator, like more ASEAN, sorry, having revenues across multiple different countries and different uh, currencies as well, but a very, very, well, cheap from a USD perspective, Malaysian ringgit base. 70, 100 people in Malaysian ringgit salaries. Another thing as well is that like, uh, I don't know if people are proud of this or not, but some people saw it out, some people, we are actually really Malaysian. Almost like 90, 80% of all employees are all Malaysians. Uh, we don't actually hire foreigners. My coders as well. Uh. So we something we're very proud. We uh, hone in-house Malaysian coders. We hone in-house Malaysian fintech guys. We really do. Trade. I've got like guys who are now remittance leads in like, uh, i got guys who are like senior positions in financial IT, senior positions in big pay. We've been around quite a while. We've actually graduated quite a few different people out to different sides. Very Malaysian focus. So, so you have about 30 developers now there, right? Uh, uh, including operations, compliance yeah. and developers. Developers about a dozen how, or so. How, how challenging was it to Everybody keeps telling me, you know, yeah. that oh, it's so hard to get really good stuff, and you know. Uh, well, it's extremely hard. It's extremely hard, right? The I think what we think that we learned very early on is that like the first four or five was really, really key, uh, because what we will we realize that like when you're hiring for different, different positions, right? Usually people have roughly the same kind of mindset, like oh, I want a better career, better money, use, but not coders. That's something we realized very early on. Okay. Coders have a different mindset, right? Like, um, you can get like a superstar rockstar coder. Who chose you because the stack he prefers that stack. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's about understanding it. So I think once we fixated on what kind of stack we wanted to build up, right, early on, which is a lot of well, that kind of stuff, we started like deep diving into it and doing the then started attracting people who were interested in that kind of stacks as well. Right? So we got like, oh, most senior guys like formerly from my grab kind of stuff and all that kind of things. But generally, the idea is that like um the, it's a bit of a click thingy, right? So we have a click of engineers who are like coding, full stack, we're happy with each other and do awesome, awesome work, right? And because of the nature of our business, right? Everybody eventually grew to become awesome. Everybody's a full stack, but the primary skill set became back-end. Because money match today, we are, as I mentioned to you earlier, right? The front end is actually very business. It's all sales guys and all that, right? Our tech is very deep end. Like literally, my guys are like super close to the Ripple California engineers. Mm. Literally, you're constantly across Ripple California. That's our level. So we are very, very back-end engineers, infrastructure, so many API connections and complicated APIs to different, different banks overseas, with different, different partners overseas, so on and so forth. We have APIs to Chargeify, APIs to Airwire, so many, so many different complications. So we are hardcore superstar back-end programmers. Uh, but because we don't have any fun at all, our back-end also do the fun end, but our fun end is very, really pretty straightforward. Yeah, because we are about pricing and it's Speed. So yeah. we don't overly sell the UX to be very honest with you per se. In fact, we, I think we need to improve our UX. But we, because, yeah, we also have a B2B to see SME customers have a completely different platform. That's another thing people don't know. And SME customer, right, very interestingly, once they log onto the same platform that the retail guys are, they open up a completely brand new platform with very, very, uh, that's created only for business customers. Uh, it's like corporate online banking. Lah. So we created that about a year and a half ago per se, right? So all the UX the, uh, upgrades are all inside that. <laughs> Not even on the front end as yeah. uh, funny as it sounds. Right? Because every time the SME says, hey, I wonder you have this, or we just keep upgrading the business platform. As, as, you, as you learn more about it, you know, <laughs> Yeah, correct, correct, correct. And then that platform becomes very powerful, but actually only people who are registered to log in actually can see that already, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which are only SME customers, yeah. So that's just how it's been like evolved in that way per se. Yeah, How's the we, if it's a big problem to hire. I was gonna say big problem. So, so we because of problem with uh, so end up the people we hire now are like hard, like the last two guys came from IBM, 
Yeah, so that kind of character coming because like the nature of it, we stopped attracting like the startup guys, not attracting the yeah, you started attracting more like the back end guys who want to like keep on there or want to go and experience in the fintech sector. Yeah, so that kind of things. Yeah. And I guess they can see the stability and the size of MoneyMat is a nice sweet spot, right? Correct, it's not correct. quite a startup that might burn up in six months. Yeah, correct, correct. Yeah, 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 right? yeah, but yeah. the tech is exciting enough. For a back-end perspective, yeah. correct, correct, correct. So if you're looking for an awesome UX experience, we are probably not the best place to go. So we started attracting the more better guys at the end, but it's still a massive issue. Lah. And obviously, when you steal people from IBM, they're not lowly paid, right? So there's a whole set of problems that come out as well. Right? Like, oh my God, what kind of salaries are this, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, technically, you want to pay out, sure, right? But it also comes to like, you know, your burn and all that, right? How you're running your business, right? Yeah. So, so what next? So, so we said that okay. So other countries you're applying now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously, still growing the the Indonesian market. Yeah, yeah, correct. So Brunei, we are to like have a few more people because the regulators there expect us to have a more of a presence over there. So in Brunei, we are, we have like four or five people. We end up to be ten or twelve, but definitely not seventy. Yeah. But Brunei as well, like sales and marketing is a lot more straightforward as well. It's a fairly small country where everything's in the city or so. Right? Yeah. yeah. So generally, per se. But I guess it does have a lot of foreign workers. Oh, 65% of all emittents from Brunei outwards goes into Malaysia. Really? That's up there. <laughs> ah, I can remember. Ah, I would have thought it would be closer neighbours, you know, to either Indonesia or Philippines. They got a lot of Philippine workers. I guess about Sarawak and Sarawak. Yes. So, out of a 420,000 population, 100,000 of them are former workers expatriates. Uh, it's not like Malaysia where you got large palm oil estates and all that kind of stuff that you got a lot of. So there aren't as yeah as many estate workers as you think. There aren't. Yeah, it's actually like maybe uh, it's not as much as you think, right? So a very, very large sector is oil and gas in Kuala Belait, not in Bandar Shibikawan, right? So that Kuala Belait is the one half hours out of that's huge. Employing like maybe 70,000 out of the 100,000 all are there, right? 70,000 of them, are, these are oil and gas workers. So these are white collar workers. Yeah. It's not Indonesians, yeah. it's not, these are Malaysians. These are all earning 3,000 uh, dollars or more. That means like 9,000 ringgit already. Yeah. Uh, How did you sniff that up? Hustle. Uh. <laughs> Actually, I think the first hustle was that when I met them at a fintech festival. I met the regulator at a fintech festival. Usually I go hustling, I don't come over there and stuff. And the nice thing about it is that like uh, in the ASEAN sector, everybody is just so fixated on Indonesia and Vietnam. That like even such that nobody really cares about the smaller guys per se, right? So we are more focused on like Brunei, trying to get out to like Cambodia, stuff like that per se. Because Indonesia and Vietnam so much focus and money and capital being thrown there, right? Like what's our real value advantage there, right? In Malaysia, yeah, you can throw it to here here, but we are still champions. We are like local right? So we're unworthy of it here. But for me to go and compete as a Malaysian fintech into Indonesia, what's my value add? So actually from Remittances going up from Malaysia. What's the West East country is the, the biggest outflow? You mean for uh, I mean Malaysia or for money match? For Malaysia. Oh, for Malaysia. Oh, for money match. Okay. Malaysia. Ah, okay. So yeah. in Malaysia, as I mentioned earlier, it's mainly foreign worker remittances, right? But that's not my money match. So money match, we send almost no money to Bangladesh, or stuff like that, right? Uh, because of how we are set up as a SME focus, number one, where do imports come in? China lah, biasa lah. All right. So uh, Europe, USA, uh, but more of USD lah. Uh, USD out to Hong Kong. So USD out to Hong Kong and Singapore, obviously to all the trading importers are the number one biggest ones, out to China as well. And the only one that's not Singapore, Hong Kong, China will be Indonesia because Malaysia and Indonesia has humongous amounts of import-export per se. Right. Yeah. So we really just follow the import-export flows per se. I mean, our business and our flows are nothing like the Malaysian national remittance flows. Our flows are like the banking import-export flows kind of thing. Yeah, and do you see if Singapore is such a big market right now, the last couple of years, do you see yeah. some stalling in the trend? Are things still okay? 
Yeah, but I think that for I think a bit different factor here is that like for Singapore and Hong Kong, but mostly Singapore, right? This is everything to them. Financial sector is everything to them, right? So the way and the effort that they, um, whether it's through tax breaks or well, incentivizing it to grants, well, it is, I fully expect them to continue on a full blown steam ahead. Uh, in the financial services sector per se, right? Like, it's from, from a Singapore perspective, right? Uh, but competition now also is ridiculous. It's like, very, very competitive, right? So, the union economies don't really make sense. So, for people like us, it's really like just getting out uh, licenses over there, not really to build humongous teams, but just getting out presence over there, where we're really going to be focused on is primarily Brunei, as well as other ASEAN countries. Yeah, right? So, I think for us, the biggest part about it is uh, figuring where's the next major, major uh, post-Series B expansion. But with the, with the trade war and all that, do you see Oh, not at all. It's increasing, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ever since that has happened, right, we honestly feel that um, import, I mean, trade between Malaysia and China has increased tremendously. <laughs> I think China trade is first more now. <laughs> in a way, or China trade ASEAN partners. China guys buying China stuff through Malaysia, right? Uh, not really that we see, but like, I think that China guys are basically dealing quite a lot with the ASEAN countries per se. So we see, yeah. Markets, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean like, um, even the China banks, BOC, ICBC, and uh, the other guys as well, they're so aggressive now in the ASEAN countries as well. We bank with them as well, stuff like that as well. So it's a bit of a different uh, perspective. I think it's more like anti-US thingy and ASEAN direct to uh, China. <laughs> yeah. Good. So we're coming up to the hour. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, time. So last uh, last words from you in terms of the future for Money Match and future for yourself. Sure, where, sure, where, sure, where sure, now? sure. Oh, yeah. For Money Match, uh, pretty straightforward. I mean, like, uh, expanding out countries, expanding out products, yada, yada, yada. Obviously, a big uh, spender in the works for this year is the Digital Banking Consortiums. Mm. Yeah, so, so, yeah. Sorry, 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 we will definitely obviously not be leading any kind of consortium. Right? We don't have the financing angle to it, per se, right? Um, but I think that like in Nagara size as well, we are one of the largest guys who actually serve the underserved segment like, for SME sector, per se, right? Uh, the same digital banking team as well as the same team we have been dealing with in Nagara for four or five years, per se. So I think they're very comfortable with us, per se. So I think uh, the expectation is for us to be part of something. Like. <laughs> yeah, but which consortium is the biggest headache right now? My God, it's such a headache, right? Uh, two or three guys, everybody what knows that. Right? Who, who to marry yeah, kind of. Because like, uh, I can tell you there's going to be a lot of applicants. Uh. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Last I heard, we are looking at over two dozen now already. Uh. All who, all the over two dozen are uh, who two billion no issue. Uh. Uh, first test in case, can you do two billion ringgit? I can. Okay, let's talk about it. Uh, right? so, so that's the main point. There's only five licenses out. Uh, I think two or three are semi-set in stone in my opinion. Uh, semi-ish. Uh, but a couple of those guys are also doing their own stuff their own way. They're not really going to work with anybody you know, their website. Uh, so those two or three others that's available per se uh, is where for us it's about finding the winner la, right? I mean to be part of a consortium is easy there's so many consortiums already waiting for us per se right? even in Singapore so we are also consortium we almost entered it per se it's not hard to be part of a consortium but can you be part of the winning consortium you know, it's the bigger issue la, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so right now we are trying to decide I guess we'll decide in the next two or three months uh, which bet we're going first uh, for sure per se that's, uh, that, that's, uh, that's the biggest thing because um it might have involved the consortium with equity kind of stuff. So that's the only thing that would be particularly different. But other than that, it's really like hardcore expansion out there. Um, we have a couple of pretty cool products that's planned to launch out for ourselves as well. All very specifically serving um, the underserved SME segment. So how we like to do it is just a bit like remittance, right? Whereby, yeah, it seems as if we're remittance, right? But because of how we're serving the SME sector, 
how we do admittance is completely different. How we do our compliance checking, blah, blah, blah. All completely different. Than the, our entire UX, UI, how we approach customers, completely different, right? Same thing as well for another couple of the of, uh, products that I'm looking at. So there might be products that's already out there in the market, right? But I'm planning to make it very, very, very specific for SMEs, underserved SMEs, SMEs who can't pay a big bill. This is very important to understand, you know, because SMEs, people like to target it because people, banks like to assume you can make big money from SMEs. That's really the primary reason why everybody going after the SME sector, right? But I think that you need to understand that our SMEs are guys who are not rich. Our SMEs are not the profitable segments of it, right? So it's a very different type of way of it. Yeah, correct. Exactly, right? Exactly, right? When you, yeah, because the bank made no money on these guys, right? But so when we service them, we had to think about a couple of other things because the exit costs will be really, really low. Our cost structure is going to be really, really low. And then still serving them to make them happy and move them away from their banks like Public Bank, Hong Leong Bank. There's so many battles to be fought. So we have a couple of other products which we are really working and like servicing particularly, particularly just the SME and hopefully making the UX, uh, UI process really, really smooth for them. So in a way, just to end it up per se, I think the vision for Money Match per se is to become the transaction banking choice a preferred choice for the banks uh, for our customers right so like if you're going to use um, payments obviously right I mean domestic payments you can do if you want to do but it's just, it's so many other people doing domestic payments right but basically payments per se uh, as well as a couple other things which um, expense management per se cash management per se trade services uh, but basically transaction banking that's really where we're heading up per se and hopefully you're going to we're already working in funding societies we're going to work very large with uh, SPRC as well and a few other guys as well uh, there's also a P2P lender in Singapore who's opening up over here who's going to offer out credit as well so we're going to keep on working with various other P2P guys and all that. We're going to do a big deal with Fantastic pretty soon as well. Uh, so we're going to keep on working with the guys because our specialty is not credit financing. That's not who we are. Uh, we are pretty cool and awesome in deep tech for cross-border payments, uh, blockchain, machine learning, opt- uh, algorithm optimization for our peer-to-peer matching. It's actually pretty cool the things that we're doing at the back end, but not financing. That's a world apart. So we're happy to work with other people who are way smarter in algorithm credit financing and stuff like that as well. So that's really the reason for Money Match. And for myself, I don't know. Hopefully, I, hopefully my wife doesn't divorce me in the next few years. That's a primary KPI. KPI number one, don't get divorced. KPI number two, if you don't get divorced, maybe you might get an exit as well. So that's what we need to think. Don't get divorced and uh, exit. You never know when Yeah, definitely, definitely. Cool, man. Thanks, thanks, for, for, time, thanks man. a lot. Okay, yeah. All right. Cheers. Cheers.